Discover new mind and body hacks to thrive as a human today. The Institute for Aliveness is here to teach you all the things you never learned in school. From talking poop, sex, childhood trauma, emotional intelligence, psychedelics, and of course, fasting and food. This is a podcast that changes lives. Join your host, Dr. Andrea Page, as she travels seven continents to find the most captivating, impactful humans for you. This is a monumental episode. Uh, I invite all of you listening to find a place where you can close your eyes and deeply sit down and reflect. For some of you, you might want to be hiking through mountains or a forest uh, if you you know, dry, driven by external stimulus, wherever you are, whatever you end up doing, know that you are about to be taken into a satsang lullaby, if I can call it that. Georgie Johnson is my guest on this episode, and hmm, <laughs> wow, she is a pioneer of something that uh, she and her husband Bart have termed non-dual therapy. And it was, of course, nothing other than the title, the words, that caught my attention and made me want to bring her on to the podcast. She's the author of three books, and Georgie, Oxford-educated, brings, I wouldn't so far as call it science, but she brings rational thought and a grounded approach to spirituality in a almost poetic way where you are swept up into the remembrance of that which we are as a species. And so as you journey through the next hour of consciousness and awareness and that path of remembering, uh, I guess I'd like to say, welcome home. Yeah, super. And you'll see nothing changes in my voice or how I'm talking to you or how I'm talking to the audience of Yes. There's no presenter of now we're here with Georgie. It's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> let's continue this, this conversation. Yes. Um, and yeah, really, really glad to invite other humans that we can't necessarily see, but somehow maybe we'll be able to tap in and feel them who will listen to our our conversation here forth uh, into this space. And, and uh, you are here with Georgie Johnson and myself, Andy, and... Uh, on the TIFA, the Institute for Aliveness's podcast, the Vitality podcast. Uh, and this is season seven of the podcast. So it has quite a history over many years. And um, we're back this season talking about the edges of human evolution. And this is everything that we do at the Institute for Aliveness. Um, yeah, you know, our mantra to be up-leveling humanity, holding higher standards for the human species of what it means to be human and what it means to show up and evolve and what is that path of self-growth um, in a very embodied, non-dualistic way. And um, Georgia originally caught my attention from her uh, coining of the term non-dual therapy. And she has two books, um, which I candidly shared with her and I'll share with all of you as well, that I haven't read. So I, I look forward with all of you to learn about um yeah the, the the her work on consciousness and the psyche um one book i think is called the Psycholo- psychology of awakening and i am here is the other is that correct jody uh yeah there's also uh non-dual passion there's three books oh uh, there's three. another one coming non-dual trauma which is go oh, wow. <laughs> i am so excited to hear about all of these so essentially jody from what i understand you are um, perhaps one could say a scholar, but another would say an author, right? You are someone who's who's yeah. writing and creating written works around that which we are doing live at TIFA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the passion that we have, me, my, uh, my husband is really in uh, breaking new ground in understanding and giving it a language. And Yes, 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 yes. I'm so excited to be having this conversation. So yeah. I'd love to throw it over to you. I mean, this this... We're here to, I think, I think we're both comfortable probably enough to sit um, at a box that is opening itself and and witness it as it's opening in terms of what we will discuss today and what will emerge from us even talking. Um, so the audience knows we've literally just met. Um, and yeah, Georgie, if you would be willing to introduce yourself and speak a little bit about your past and how that informs your present and your present and, and what you're up to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, oh, where where do you even begin? <laughs> you know, the telling a whole a whole uh, past, a whole life story. 
uh, I'm English, <laughs> born, uh, but grew up in Belgium uh, from age nine or something. And, uh, I don't really want to build legends about uh, this because uh, I speak about it. I'm totally open to speak about the different stories of the past, but it's always a little bit story weaving, which is a way to also teach. But maybe it's worthwhile to just to say that I was very much involved with uh, non-duality. Having been brought up a Catholic uh, with a kind of mystical mother, I then got into this uh, Eastern philosophy school as a teenager, uh, evening class in like transcendental meditation, a little bit like the style of the study society in, in, in England, but uh, not then. Transcendental meditation, that kind of thing and uh, rebelled with the death of my father and found them very cold-blooded and judgmental and their views on karma and their lack of compassion uh, kind of alienated me. And then I started having an affair with my English teacher at school. And, and so I was very much thrown out of that uh, scene and threw myself out and was really threatened that if I wouldn't end this affair with my English teacher, then I would never find the truth. Mm -hmm and uh, by the head of the school of uh, non-duality. And wow. uh, of course, that in that moment, there was no question for me that, uh, that my truth was I had to leave the school of non-duality and continue having a very good, nice time with my English teacher. Because uh, <laughs> you know, what is that? You know, the truth is not like that. And so I went on to university and studied uh, English literature. Uh, I wanted to study philosophy and psychology, but it was so, uh, for want of a better word, anal and unattractive, the syllabus that I decided to go for literature and the theory. It's more possible to bring in philosophy and psychology and to study it freely and to take on the research, uh, the theoretical aspect, so to, to, to freely study uh, Jung and Freud and, Mm. And actually, already at that stage, I was got deeply into Hegel and dialectical thinking. And when I look back, it's all non-dual therapy right there. It was theses and antithesis and synthesis. And they look back at the essays. It was it was already very, very alive in my English essays at university. Mm. But at that stage, I was in no way mystical. I was very much focused on the unconscious and on the a Freudian approach to literature and a feminist literary theory, theoretical approach. Mm and uh, went on to come to Israel as a journalist and as a place where there's a lot of duality and a lot of conflict and a lot of peace and a lot of love and a lot of uh, light. I was, mm. was very, very attracted to this incredible pluralistic nightmare of a place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. And also feeling from the, my family background, the feeling I don't belong anywhere. And here was the land of not belonging so we could all belong together and mm. not belonging. Uh, and felt very much at home like that. Uh, and for a while I was a hard-nosed journalist and but trying to save the world against what I saw as the threat of non-conventional terrorism and uh, global terrorism mm. even though I was very very much a peace activist it, it, it wasn't a, a how do you say with a the head in the sand mm -hmm. I very much focused on <laughs> honesty actually that uh, people should know exactly why they're living here what the threat is what the threat is globally what's really going on uh, because i became very aware of the amount of lies in the media and that was in the uh, end of the 90 end of the 90s uh, before bin laden hit uh, the twin towns in new york by that time, I'd had a complete and total nervous breakdown from trying to awaken everybody to the threat. And the same people that called me psychotic then started calling me and saying, what's going to happen next? Because it was uh, this kind of uh, spiritual psychosis that I was in about this, uh, investigating the threat of journalism, but also uh, the threat of uh, terrorism, but also uh, a kind of a psychic psychosis. I, I was getting visions, mm. uh, mass destruction. I remember there was a guy from the Israeli security services was sent to me to, to, to interview him. And he told me there is no such person as bin Laden. The CIA made him up. He doesn't exist. And, you know, go home, woman, and look after your children. And, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, I was driving home along the coast. And 
uh, just this ridiculously kitsch song, you know, honesty is such a lonely word, <laughs> was uh, playing in my head. And I just knew, I just knew that uh, it was absolutely lying to shut me up. But anyway, with the nervous breakdown that came, I got to a position where I felt like I was being anthrax attacked or nerve gas attacked every time I took a highway because I was imagining all of these nightmare scenarios uh, empathically mm. and therefore experiencing the symptoms and smoking much too much cannabis and drinking much too much uh, uh, espresso coffee and trying to mother three little children at the same time. So there was a complete meltdown at a certain stage. Mm. And with that, there was a collapse of the personality including the ego, which I had of resistance to the whole non-duality thing from when I was a teenager. And this great kind of humiliation of this, you know, Avenger that wanted to save the world and that mm. saw it as her vision to um, save all the children, bring the truth. And there was nothing left and except this dire depression. I was walking around Cambridge. We were on sabbatical in Cambridge. And uh, it was just this incredible, after the anxiety came, the depression with the medication. And mm -hmm. uh, it was literally stepping into an aromatherapy shop and smelling the essential oils. Something came like a lifeline of feeling or coming to life through the sense of smell. And I began just massaging people's feet and from there studying reflexology and wandering around from bookshop to bookshop. And at a certain stage, I saw this guy on a book and he looked familiar. And the book was uh, The Way of Happiness by the Dalai Lama and it was the Dalai Lama's face on the front of it. Hmm. And I was so out of touch with that. It was just because I'd left this behind, uh, the whole mystical thing as a 16 year old. And I picked up this book and he started uh, reading about how the antidote to compassion, to, to fear and to depression is really compassion. And so I began trying it out of desperation. Maybe this would be a thing, just imagining myself in the shoes of other women at the local school where I would go to get the children. This had an incredible boring uh, effect, little by little, a little bit less anxiety, a little bit less depression. Uh, mm. a little bit of being able to live another day. And at a certain moment, uh, my sister-in-law of that time uh, told me that there was a therapist in uh, Israel when we were going back to Israel. There was a therapist who worked also a little bit with the paranormal. And so I went to her and it was like grasping hold of a, a hand uh, on the edge of hell. And the next day I was in the garden with the children and she'd said she would send me healing and I was in the garden with the children and suddenly I felt my energy and this from a place of anxiety and stress there was this unconditional sense of joy everything was absolutely fine and it was like the grass became green in a joyful way and like a whole load of fear and anxiety just fell off mm. which was like a little miracle and so next time I went to her, I said, I, I want to learn what you're doing. I, I, whatever you're doing, I want to learn how to do this. I want, I, I want this. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is amazing. And that's what brought me to the studies uh, with my uh, future husband, Bart, uh, in the Galilee, mm. and began studying this uh, energy work and uh, this uh, system of spiritual psychology, which was originally developed by Bob Moore, who was a spiritual healer. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a process. Now, at a certain moment, those studies, like moving to the felt sense, moving to feeling the feelings, doing exercises which use the symmetry and duality of points on the body, a little bit like acupressure, led to a bursting open of the heart mm -hmm. and a shift in a dramatic shift out of the personality into a, a kind of reunion with the state of unconditional being. And along the way, uh, a few years later, this dropped down into the physical body, very much in the base of the spine and the tailbone, and there was this process of emptiness in the here and now. And the question which had really led me there was like, okay, being in the now is, is one thing, but on the other side, we've got this teaching of feel the feelings. So 
between the now and the feelings, you know, between this mental now, 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 now business and this heart-based feel the feelings, feel the feelings, there has to be a synthesis. There has to be a container. Mm. And this is what really brought me into the kind of inside the spine and the tailbone and the base of the spine into this kind of here and now physical sensory expansion into emptiness. And with that experience came the first book, I Am Here, you know, I being uh, the identity, the mind, the now, time, mm-hmm. am meaning being, feeling, awareness, and here being the basis of the embodiment. Uh, this led to that book, and with the, already in the, towards the last chapters of that book, I Am Here, was unraveling non-dual therapy. Um, the qualities of consciousness were beginning to come forward as the, such as passion or peace or love or freedom as differentiated energies, which have an immense healing effect as bridges between the personality and the existential source of ourselves between, let's say our consciousness or existence or pure life, aliveness, whatever it is that is here now, between that and the personality, there is this vibrational fields of qualities, which each one, while everything is one, each one has a particular purpose uh, and a reason for being as a bridge, as a kind of ferry boats of energy between the source and the personality and from the personality back into the source. Of course, when I say into the personality, it's not for most people. The personality is not the the only the thing. It's through the personality into the whole social entanglement and the field of relationships and the the so called real life on the outside, and all the way back to whoever or whatever or wherever we are as an existence here. So why do I say it's a bridge and not a an emanation? It's uh, the experience of love, for example, comes forward very, very strongly after there's been an awakening of the heart, mm-hmm. where there has been an opening of the heart or a relaxation of the heart or a release from this belief that uh, it's love versus hatred or it's love versus fear or that love is in some form of competition. And then there is this movement into the source and then there is this experience of love this realization that and it can at that moment it can look like all there is is love and and that can form a whole school of the people that say all there is is love but that's just one dimension and it's partly determined by the effect of where the prison that they were released from a moment before that Mm -hmm. but the energy nonetheless is spontaneously arising if you if you if you move into the energy of peace the energy of love will follow by itself it, it's 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 a river which goes in both directions the same with the energy of peace you know energy of peace comes as a natural effect of touching the source there there is this can be incredible sense of peacefulness but also the experience of peace can be a result of coming out of a situation of deep mental conflict Mm-hmm. Or a very strong sense of split or tension or stress, a little bit like Eckhart Tolle has this experience of peace and stillness, which is, it would seem to, it would seem a direct effect of where he was the moment before that. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So uh, this led to the whole understanding of non-dual therapy uh, and the primacy of consciousness and the qualities of consciousness as bridging agents in the whole movement of integration and self-development and liberation from the personality and within the personality because you know it's not enough to say okay i'm free of my personality and that's it i don't need one of those because mm-hmm. because the personality is like the instrument we have with which we interface with uh, the whole and we're not separate from the whole mm-hmm. you know to say that uh, you know we are enlightened separately is like to say that my little finger is healthy and the rest of the body can just rot in illusion you know we, we are part of the whole and we're <laughs> vibrationally associated with the whole mm-hmm. i like to think of the personality just to, to give another analogy for anyone listening as uh the cards that you've been dealt to mm-hmm. play 
as you walk through the game of life. Um, yes. I, I practice astrology. And so when you can look at all of the planetary influences that make up what Western psychology would call the personality. Yes. There's, there's an ability to begin to play with it rather than this spiritual bypassing escapist um, yes. out of saying, yeah, I don't need that anymore. Let me just show up as a white, you know, a white curtain or whatever. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it, it's not possible without splitting from the direct feeling experience of being alive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anger, for example, is part of our natural physiological makeup. Mm. And so is fear. It's part of our instinctive uh, naturalness. We need it. Like every other animal needs anger and fear, we also need anger and fear and to, to dissociate ourselves from anything that we feel is uh, uh, to split, it's to divide. So to dissociate in the name of non-duality might be okay to, in the sense of taking taking refuge for a while, mm. taking sanctuary to resource. But the flow from the source into the personality and into the world and from the world through the personality back into the source of ourselves, this flow uh, horizontally and vertically is so strong that uh, at a certain moment, what we end up with is that the mind is just interfering to try and enforce a certain status in a position, and we're right back where we started again in the wheel of suffering. Mm -hmm. We lose our lives when we try and control it or deny it. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's so incredibly alive, the personality. Uh, and uh, it's a little bit like the heartbeat. You know, people think a, a healthy heart is one that beats rhythmically, the same rhythm all the time. It's not true. A healthy heart is one that responds to the needs of the whole, meaning you have to run down the street, it will beat faster. And if you go into deep rest, it will beat slower. A healthy heart is very responsive and changing and moving according to the environment. And it's the same with the personality. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. extremely responsive to the environment. And that also plays quite a part uh, in how we take form in any moment. Yeah, versatility. There's two things that are coming from what you're saying um, for me. One of them is obviously heart rate variability, which is the metric around the healthy heart that you speak of. Um, and one of the things that likely you don't know, Georgie, that we're doing at the Institute for Aliveness is, is putting metrics around not only consciousness itself, perhaps, right? It's a big task. I'm sure you've heard people try before, um, but also around the process of healing and growth and what does that look like and how does it shift and change over long periods of time in your physiology? And so heart rate variability yes. is a key indicator of that um, that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, the other thing that um, kind of reveals itself in, in my mind's eye is, as I hear you speak about this and uh, by the way, thank you. <laughs> this is beautiful. It's like satsang podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to take a moment for anyone listening as well to just breathe into the fact that if you're really either in flow walking around right now, or if you are sitting or whatever, whatever you're doing right now, if you're able to fully immerse yourself in Georgie's words in this process that there, there may very well be, uh, unfolding inside of you of something that's perhaps been folded and, and that feeling is truth it's that sense of vibration of something really landing that the truth of the human experience is being spoken and when that is spoken it should shift maybe strike an emotional chord or shift something inside of you and um um georgie i would love to inquire into when when obviously you've written books on it so it takes a, a long time to explain however i would love if if you can or if you feel it's accessible to describe what non-dual therapy is mostly by illustrating perhaps its difference from other forms of therapy that people have had and giving any senses of yeah this is what it is as well yeah so the, in most, the way we are conditioned, and this includes the, th the fields of therapy, the, the schools of psychology, which are most uh, 
consensual and common is that what we're dealing with primarily is the personality and uh, because the personality is seen as definitive as being who you are and what you are then the only way that we can really move or create a, a healing effect is through behavior or functioning that becomes the measure of this thing, the personality, which it's assumed is in a way the absolute of individuality. And that's one hell of an assumption, which flies in the face of direct experience that we are the personality and that the personality defines who we are and what we are, especially that when, as we know from non-dual inquiry, that when you look for the personality, you don't really find it. We're not the same one that we were. On the level of personality, we're not the same one that we were as a teenager. We're not the same one that we were as a child. We're not the same one that we are when we visit our mother as we are when we're in bed with our lover. We literally change form all the time. We're shape-shifting. And beneath that, there are these undercurrents of uh, patterns and tendencies and traits and attractions which are all in the resonant field of what we call the field of experience. And so this makes it recognizable, a personality to some degree. But when you really tune in to what makes an individual unique, it's not their personality. There is a felt sense of the incredible unique presence in the same way that you know if you've had somebody that's died and you can feel them in the room, even though you can't see them, even though you can't hear them, even though you can't touch them, you can feel their presence. You can feel their essence. And this isn't a personality. This is something essential, a blend of quality, a particular mm -hmm. flavoring, a particular recipe. It's a little bit like why one grandmother's chicken soup tastes so different and so unique mm -hmm. to another grandmother's chicken soup. It's made of the same stuff, but the combination is unique. And uh, this spiritual dimension of ourselves is pretty much ignored in regular therapy. And so it's not directly spoken to. It's a byproduct. Mm. So we've got a lot of beliefs in energy. Firstly, that, that consciousness is secondary. It's an effect of the brain. Mm. It's an electrical thing that happens when you wake up in the morning and which stops when you die. There are belief which is dictated and never proven is the hard conscious the, the hard problem of consciousness in throughout the whole of science there, there is nothing here except belief but mm. what we can bring is direct experience how does it feel to be conscious what is the experience of consciousness can consciousness be conscious of consciousness can we be aware that we're aware and when yeah. we begin to move like this what tends to happen is that there is an awakening not just of uh, uh, consciousness itself an expansion and the liberation from the form of the personality or from the even from the uh, wedlock with the physical body as being the only thing that's there but also there comes a flood of quality the quality of freedom for example comes forward very very strongly now the quality of freedom is an incredible healing agent it has a resonant effect at a cellular level it's it can change. If ultrasound can change the structure of your cells, imagine the, the dimension we're talking. So when your whole system has the neurochemistry and the biochemistry of freedom, it's having a direct effect on how we think, how we feel, how the blood is moving, the well-being of the whole, including the physical and the psychological. And it, freedom is contagious. So once there is an awakening of freedom in consciousness and consciousness in freedom, it's having an effect on every aspect of the personality. Mm. Uh, reality, the sense of reality, that's a felt sense, like the sense of freedom. This is what happens when there's a conscious awakening, the sense of reality. So there is a you know, psychological disorder at the junction of spiritual emergency, where they call it derealization. Mm. depersonalization and try to medicate people so they will forget that they are awake so that they'll forget the strangeness of beginner's mind and it's a horrible thing that's happening right now and in this we get quite passionate as non-dual therapists because if we can catch people in that moment we can mm. turn heaven hell into heaven very very quickly 
It's possible to resource the qualities of true nature, which are there to heal the trauma in its own space, which has come forward maybe as part of the rude awakening, and to integrate what's painful mm. with the incredible benefit of the resources which are there with the awakening, freedom, joy, bliss, peace. And this is not personal. The personality cannot hold the qualities of true nature. You know, maybe later on it can come and say, yeah, I am peace, I am love, I am the one who is the most humble, <laughs> I have the most humility, but it, it can't, can't really hold it. It's always going to be from beyond the personality. So that's from one angle of it. Non-dual therapy is, is working with consciousness as primary, with the experiential field, the felt sense, the feeling aspect as primary, not just as something where we want the good feelings and not the bad feelings. All of it is part of our lifeness, physical sensations, emotions, the depth of feelings as they move through the psyche, uh, feelings that affect the whole area of the mind, like the sense of genius, the sense of truth, the sense of clarity. So we see the felt sense, the resonant field as primary. And that's already a huge difference from regular therapy where there's very much an agenda to get the pleasure and not the pain and to get the functionality and to get the behavior conformed. And mm -hmm. to uh, often, as a result, heap layers of the energy of denial and the energy of negation and the energies of uh, 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 invalidation on places where we have suffered. So that's from one side, that's for people who are not yet awakened. There's an immense clearance that can happen just by retraining consciousness to take seriously what's felt in the whole field of experience as opposed to what's thought about it. The other area where we're very active is in catching people after they've had a non-dual awakening, which is can or, or, a, or a strong spiritual experience, which at first can be amazing, but afterwards they crash into a kind of dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. uh, often because that same freedom, for example, if you have an awakening and this freedom comes forward and the freedom is moving through the personality, then also your traumas are going to start to get free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Also, the thing that you never wanted to ever feel will start to come and say, you think you're free now? You know? mm -hmm. if, if, if I come, your worst nightmare. And there is really support needed there. And th those people are already speaking a different language. They cannot unsee what they've seen. They cannot unrealize what has been realized about the nature of reality. So mm -hmm. they don't come far when they go to a regular therapist and start talking about past lives and about consciousness, they're not even, they use the same word, but they don't mean the same thing anymore. Mm. So it seems that there's quite a need for uh, this approach. And maybe it will only come to its full fruition in the you know, next hundred years. But I hope that we are sowing the seeds of uh, not just uh, insights, but also different techniques, sharing different techniques. Uh, to work with trauma, to work with uh, what we call energetic contraction, mm -hmm. and to work with actually what is our worst nightmare, which is the fact that we are free. <laughs> that there is infinite joy, and that because we blame, we blame, our, we're taught to blame our true nature for our suffering. And this is a massive turnaround of reprogramming, which we're trying to do. Because, you know, for example, innocence is a quality of consciousness. And then when somebody gets robbed or gets uh, tricked, we say, oh, they were too innocent. I just give a very simple example of where we blame the qualities of true nature for our suffering. But it doesn't work like that. People are innocent all the time. Life is innocent. The universe is innocent. It's an innocent universe. And there is trickery going on. And there is uh, uh, bad stuff happens. But it's not because of innocence, it's happening because of ignorance. And partly if we're not allowed to, the innocence that, that, we are, that is part of our consciousness is very awake and very alive and very fresh in the here and now. And it's partly because it's not allowed to be there and to sense the badness which is showing up in the energetic field that we do get tri tricked. It's quite the opposite. It's not because of our innocence, it's because we forgot our innocence that we get into trouble. Mm. Uh, 
so so there's a lot of reprogramming happening and uh, we're still quite a small school so i hope that it will spread <laughs> we're trying to share it with everyone everywhere uh, because only through the togetherness of many 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 realizations and many vo voices and many many compassionate hearts uh, can we move through this the the tide of ignorance is very very strong and the pressure to stay in the conditions which are here right now is also very very strong right now mm. Thank you for that, um, Georgie. And before I ask my next questions, I want to kind of uh, pave some common ground um, of what is, and this is a very big and very difficult question, uh, but if you, if you had to, uh, as you're being asked to now, quantify awakeness or... Um, that tipping point of when someone is awakened, how would you describe it? Um, you know, very much I'd, I'd want to switch it into a, out of a, a linear timeline into something which is much more geometric, multidimensional, because we are the awakeness which is here all the time at the core of everyone. Is so very powerful and so very potent and so much part of our aliveness. Uh, and what happens is that the mind, in its misconceived goodness, uh, tends to circulate suffering, denser energy through the personality, which clouds and obscures this awakeness, which is always here. That means that we can have strange effects. You know, we, we can have a dramatic awakening as a teenager and then find that five, six years later, we're deep within the clouds and the fog. And then for a moment, the clouds can part and suddenly we're back again and then we're gone again. You see what I mean? It's if you see it like more like an environment, it's easier to get a sense of this perpetual awakening that's happening. And what's mm. missing partly is the the the... The, the training, the, the information, on a mental level, it's, it's all about belief systems, that these moments of awakeness are precious and worthwhile, and we can feel okay to stay there longer and to really appreciate their value and encourage their value, if not to directly seek them out, that they really do matter, as opposed to that it's kind of shameful or uh, uncomfortably intimate or there's nothing to hold on to, or we won't belong if we're like this. Or we can no longer do our day job. Or our family will think we're crazy. You see how much education is encouraging us to step back into some kind of trance state so that we might belong with everybody else who is in a kind of trance state, with a kind of threat that you will not belong here. You will be negated. You'll be crazy. Hmm. Uh, you'll, you'll let down. You'll be a failure. You'll let down, you'll bring shame upon your family, you know, whatever. <laughs> and this is very, very tragic. It's really, really, really very tragic. Uh, and that's in, in uh, regular life. But when it comes to the awakeness that is a result of trauma, it's even more tragic. You know, so somebody dies who's close to us. There's something non-negotiable here. There was an immediate awakening. And yet the whole system is, 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 is conspiring to dull it down, to deny it, to get over it as quickly as possible, not to feel it, to get over the negative feelings, to, to look on the bright side, mm -hmm. to get back into the, uh, you know, this kind of cloned form where, the, where death isn't really a thing. It's just yeah. a kind of a blip that happens rarely. <laughs> and to be shocked again and again and again and of course we don't want to be shocked so we stay in a state of conflict all the time mm. caught in kind of hell loops and here the mind is really playing a role you know it's like it's bad to have a bad feeling so we scoop up some of the badness or the horrible suffering which is in the world the mind scoops it up and puts it on the feeling which already feels horrible mm -hmm. and replenishes it or you should be ashamed to be ashamed. 
So we're scooping up suffering and throwing it back on ourselves in these loops and in this way sustaining states of obscurity in a kind of automatic way. And uh, all the time we're very, very, very awake behind that, but we're missing an opportunity to shine. We're shining, but we're shining into a density. Mm. So awakening in a way is much more like clearance, relaxation, naturalness. And in this, the qualities can really, really help because the qualities are of true nature. By that, I mean love, peace, freedom. They are beyond the personality. So that means not only that they're at the source of ourselves on the inside, they're everywhere around us. In nature, you just connect with the dog, you get this unconditional love. Or this naturalness of being able to bark and set a border, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the next moment be frolicking through the meadows. Connect to the trees, mm. to the sky. The qualities are everywhere. It's such a friendly universe. And we are like these blinded creatures who are determined on our own suffering, condemning the world and trying to fix it. But each time we try and fix it, it's on the assumption of the belief that it's condemned. So we're trying to, we're condemning it before we even try and fix it. Because we're making it bad so that we can make ourselves purposeful, but we don't even actually come into the awakeness of being here in naturalness, first of all. You follow what I mean? We need to be so careful not to awaken to try and get out of here, mm -hmm. as opposed to awakening with whatever is here inside ourselves at any moment. Even if we feel ourselves to be an abusive, useless waste of space, to awaken there. Why not? It's not, it's, <laughs> the awakeness is still the awakeness, but we have these agendas, this reluctance to embody. Yeah, I've, um, I've been sitting with a lot over the past several months, our mantra that I mentioned at the beginning, or you can see here in the Zoom chat of, of leveling humanity, there's, um, there's a desire in me to have it instead be unveiling humanity, this sense of everything you already need is there. And that is yes. a lot of the central thesis of all of the work that we do in the world of embodied non-duality and applied epigenetics, these two fields that uh, at TIFA that we're pioneering. But yeah. um, it's a lot about remembering more than anything else. And yes. recalling up that which is already there and simply looking at all of the blockades in the road Yes, for sure, in our diet and our lifestyle, but also in our thought patterns, in that which we aren't, you know, prepared to look at inside of ourselves, or we haven't been given the tools to be able to to deal with or cope with from things that might have happened earlier in life. But once yes. we look at those blockades, then we see, you know, what's what's on the path in the way of us remembering this effervescent joy and this ability to love. And quite often uh, what we see in the, the world of perhaps more new age awakening, as well as how that's been passed on to my generation, the millennial generation, and the way in which uh, there is this positive psychology that you mentioned, sense of short circuiting or bypassing of, of it's, think positive or it's all going to be okay. Or this, this thing that, yes, is true. And yet said in those ways is often disembodied and it's detached from perhaps what we might term the, the deeper truth of the human experience, which is that we exist in, in duality. And so equal amounts of joy, happiness, you know, skipping around love that you might experience, you'll, you'll very much experience equal parts of sadness, pain, shame, sorrow, and that by being able to contain or hold your arms around and breathe into, in a very embodied way, both sides of the polarity, that that's where we find peace. And the, the peace, yes. ultimately, at the end of the day, as I love what you shared earlier, the peace is what gives way to a whole load of love washing in. Yeah. Yeah. You notice when when uh, you say to embrace both sides of a polarity, the moment we can hold two at once, we become, <laughs> we become the one behind that's doing the holding. There is a power, there is a dimension shift. Mm. And that's mm. always the movement, you know, because uh, we're not the experience ever. You know, we are 
the one that's able to to experience. Mm. We're the space in which the, the experience occurs. So, you know, to say, okay, I want the joy and not the grief is uh, to identify with the experience as being what we are. And then in no time, we're back in again within a kind of slowed down vibration of the personality. And what we're doing is actually grasping towards the joy on the one hand. And what we get then is the energy of grasping. There's no joy in that. Joy cannot be held. It's like clawing at the light. And mm -hmm. we're at the same time threat detecting any kind of grief or sadness mm -hmm. and trying to avoid it. So basically, mm -hmm. we're looking for it. <laughs> and in the shadow land, grasping towards misery. And mm -hmm. all of this is happening within the deeper one of us, which is able to grasp and able to uh, averse and able to uh, interfere and able also not to interfere for a moment. We always need to look at it from uh, in, the, in a way in terms of like multidimensional. Mm. You know, there, there is a timeless one inside of ourselves. There's a boundless one inside of ourselves. And this one is not a blank, non-dual, mm -hmm. I don't know, non-thing. <laughs> it's, it's alive. It's living. It's, it's got this kind of quality of metta, the Buddhists call metta, this loving kindness, this potent, sweet suffusion of un at first undifferentiated qualities, a kind of friendliness and un uh, disentangled benevolence. Very, very, very soft, but extremely potent. And mm. this is before we get to this agenda of wanting the pleasure and not the pain, or wanting the positive and not the negative. And one of the qualities which can really help with you talk about the new age in, mm. in helping us get free of the traps which are here is, is qualities like the sense of truth, the sense of reality. You notice that when I talk about a quality, I say it's a sense because it's not a thing, it's a sensory ability. Mm. So the sense of truth, for example, you know, maybe the worst thing that ever happened to us when our personality cut us to the core, the deepest pain we ever felt, maybe mm. that was also where there was the deepest sense of truth, mm. where there's a great feeling of uh, something essential being awakened something beyond the personality, mm -hmm. something beyond the habits of, you know, Tupperware parties and regular day, <laughs> regular small-time concerns of small-time suffering, something meaningful happened. Mm -hmm. And the sense of truth was awakened, and then we come to a positive psychologist. And I'm sure they're great because, you know, psychologists are human beings who resonate also with true nature, it doesn't, but, but the principle. And it's like, okay, but think positive, don't think negative. Mm -hmm. Let's get rid of those negative feelings. But that's the last thing. The negative feelings are the most truthful. They're screaming for validation, for recognition. They're wanting to integrate with the whole. This thing happened. It matters. We matter. What we feel matters. And often in the, the, the lazy way therapy tends to go is to behave as if our feelings don't matter and there's this abstract version of ourselves which we can conform to and then our feelings will follow that and we'll feel better as opposed to really honoring what's felt as if our feelings matter how it feels to be alive how it mm. feels to be conscious and this is huge because our lives do matter and our feelings do matter what we feel in our heart it really matters mm. but when we meet an unpleasant feeling in the heart which is not loving what happens is that we catapult out so fast into the field of entanglement and then start blaming somebody out there, whether it's the government or whether it's the neighbors or whatever is our compulsion of the moment, as mm -hmm. if what we feel doesn't matter because it was unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Our ability to suffer is limit. Our inability to suffer is really dulling our ability to experience anything at all. And, and this is kind of a, tragic because it makes us also very uncompassionate towards each other as well as towards ourselves mm. we lose our compassion for suffering and uh, and if we lose our compassion we lose the compass at the core of uh, our being here mm. Mm. you know with one hand we want to do good with another hand we are we are looking at reflections of ourselves to make sure that we're not rejected 
I mean, I'm sure, Georgie, people have told you before that you have the voice of an angel and the way in which you put words and rhyme and rhythm and pace to the depth of, of human awakening is, is glorious, not only in the words on a page as an author, but also spoken. And so I'm, I'm, I'm so deeply grateful and trusting of this, um, this space that you're offering to everyone listening as well. Um, and I, I want to clarify then and perhaps build on the previous question of um, what does it mean to be awake? And kind of a question in turn in response to it would be if we are, you know, in the person who to one way or another might be um, having those roadblocks, as we said, of the traumas we don't want to look at or the wounds or the pain inside, um, shying away from them. And uh, the, the only thing that we can do to stay sane would be to point outside and say that person's wrong or that person's bad, or I don't like this system or having all of these um, aversions that arise in the system. Would you then thus say that that person is not awake? If those experiences are still had taking into light the fact that you said before, of course, you know, anger is a part of the natural human experience and, and, and all of these kinds of things. Yeah. It's tricky, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's all a bit of a playing field and it becomes deadly serious at a certain moment. But, you know, I'm sure the politicians in Washington are very awake and really enjoying playing the game and through the Machiavellian side of their personality and they're having a great time. And I'm sure there is joy in it. I'm sure there's purpose in it and uh, maybe not much wisdom. But there is awakeness and it's all playing out and there is this bright light at the heart of it all of humanity and which is very very awake obscured mm -hmm. by a lot of mental fog and a lot of uh, survival strategies of the personality and, and and some of these traits of course very toxic mm -hmm. just believing that the personality is absolute is a narcissistic belief for example um, we, are, we are very much a uh, Let's say personality disorders are, are traits of trauma, and everybody is carrying trauma in their personality. Most trauma personalities are traumatized, and we're taught to believe that that's what we are. So there's a whole game going on, which nobody really believes in. So when somebody is accusing somebody else out there, especially if it's someone they've never met personally, or somebody from another religion or another country that they've never had any contact with, mm. They are, they are, they are playing a game, and they're enjoying it, and they're playing it very seriously, like an actor on a stage. But it's still deep down inside themselves, secretly, they are playing around. And what's sad is that all of this energy is going there rather than creatively into really exploring their wonder and the miracle of being here. And that's partly because physiologically neurologically we haven't been rewarded for awakening you know when i was a kid and this was like my dirty secret like conscious awakening it was like there was no language for it there was i tried to tell it to people but they would just there was no possibility of communicating what mattered was that i could count that i knew the alphabet that i didn't cause trouble and a lot of other paradoxes to be uh, self-sufficient but not selfish and all of this kind of strange stuff but awakening that feeling of being alive arriving awake it's almost difficult to integrate the most natural experience mm. uh, and so wisdom is more what's the, the, again it's the bridging of the qualities uh, wisdom is also a quality the, the, the it's there in the education it's there if we feel rejected because we are awake consciously awake as we have a conscious awakening as a child or as a teenager mm. or in a tra during a traumatic experience if this is not encouraged and we get the biochemistry of rejection then moving through the system and then the biochemistry of denial or repression mm. and we split from ourselves so there's shame which has, and we know it, this has a whole physiology. Shame can turn our cheeks red and make our lips quiver, make our eyes twitter. It can cause us to stutter. Mm. 
And these, these pathways of shame and suffering get hardwired into awakening itself. It's like if I let myself, there's a fear response that happens, a reflex by itself. If I let myself awaken, the world will end. Mm. So what we tend to do very strongly is to promote an easy sense of naturalness and being with whatever is there from a place beyond uh, judgment and resourcing that nature and including always the uh, essential layer of a person not really relating too much to the personality even if it's a full-blown uh, uh, personality disorder in front of us it's not the end of the world it's just the personality we don't need to get entangled with it we can speak directly to the essence and we can invite the essence because it's got its own intelligence and mm -hmm. it's got its own ability to awaken for example somebody who's very much in a place of uh, you know a guy who's 50 years old and he's a uh, bitter and feels his life is a failure and then he falls in love his whole physiology changes suddenly his whole attitude changes meaning the way he feels about being alive is going through a revolution light is pouring through his heart it's moving into the physical his physical body is awakening with possibilities of like the bliss of being alive which blows his mind completely his belief structures collapse this is all because he of, of love the movement of love. And of course, it's a crisis, and it's a well-known crisis, a midlife crisis, for example. But it's also a spiritual moment. It's a spiritual revolution that's happening because from the point of view of our true nature, nothing else really matters but the unfolding of heaven on earth. Mm. For the embodiment or the, uh, the movement of true nature into the physical, the bringing of heaven into the physical, every moment. And maybe it's only moments, but every moment of joy which is allowed to be here through the human physiology and out into nature and back again from nature into the human physiology and into the soul. Every such circulation is blessed and it brings its own feeling of immediate fulfillment and reward, which can in turn rewire our toxic uh, programming. So now it's like a feeling of love or a feeling of peace or a feeling of awakening is the whole brain chemistry is awakening and saying reward, reward, it's worthwhile. And the nerve system is actually relaxing into it because it starts to trust it again. Mm. So this is really the responsibility of all of us to start making these little steps into, first of all, inside ourselves, into what's true inside ourselves and to respect whatever it is that we've experienced to allow it to be there. You know. Mm -hmm. In a way, the personality, you could see it like the eyes or the ears. It's like a sensory organ. Mm -hmm. It's a means through which we consciousness perceives the world. And like the eyes or the ears or the sense of taste, in order to really, really experience the vibrations of the world, it needs to relax. And when it relaxes, it opens up. And when it opens up, the amount of information, uh, which is not just mental information, it's feeling information, the amount of connection, the amount of belonging, the amount of the greenness of the green, the, the miracle of touching water, the mm. blueness of the sky, the amount of aliveness, enlivening that can happen is immense, which by itself gives more freedom to the personality. You see, there's a turnaround, there's a flippening that can happen when we just realize that the personality is not what we are. It's here to work for us, not to imprison us. We don't have to change it. We don't have to clean up all our traumas, you know, because that never ends. I mean, I'm sure you, you know in your, in your community that you start to heal traumas and then comes forward the traumas of the ancestors and the traumas of the collective. And before you know it, they're just all lining up and it becomes a joy to work with. It becomes like a celebration as opposed to a, a job that's going to be fixed one day and then I'm going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. It's part of the art of living. And then trauma begins to look a little bit more like awakening because mm -hmm. awakening is a kind of trauma. Being born is a kind of trauma. Waking up in the morning is a kind of trauma <laughs> because that's it. We live in, we have multidimensional lives. You know, it's always a rupture, a rupture, a rupture, a rupture. But we don't have to make that bad. 
It's an experience which has suffering in it, but has aliveness in it. For example, when we really, really, really suffer, there is so much care there. Otherwise, we wouldn't be suffering. Mm. It's the care in us which is suffering. We see somebody else suffer. We suffer because we care. The care is very, very much alive. Where we are aware, there is care. And so care is suffering in a way. You could say the same of all the qualities. You know, when we are trapped in a certain situation, the freedom in us is suffering. But that suffering is part of our purpose. It's worthwhile because it's Mm -hmm. full of freedom. When we uh, change our attitude towards suffering, a lot of different miracles start to happen through all the dimensions of ourselves, back in time, through the ancestry, but also in the physical body, in the here and now, and uh, in the whole field of togetherness and interdependency as well. So beautiful. I know our that our time our time together is is nearing an end, and I just want you to go on forever, Georgie. That <laughs> <laughs> we are very compatible because it seems I'm on a roll. You know, I just keep going. Yeah. On. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I'm. I mean, you said you said something so key in there about maybe four or five minutes ago, um, where you really underlined the what what i'm i might call the the problem case of modern humanity in that there is no intrinsic value uh, or extrinsic value there's no societal value to awakening and rather um, we can say that there's been a de-emphasis on it and an overemphasis on the mechanistic production of man yes and the way that we are raised and treated whether it's our health or our food or <laughs> our consciousness and yeah. um something we are looking to do with the Institute for Aliveness and Tifa as we put metrics around awakeness consciousness and yes. a sense of the ability to self-reflect, to remove from personality or self or situation and kind of come back into that effervescent eternal of the arms being able to wrap around the duality of both the good and bad. Yes. And remembering of that which we are. And yeah. in that process, through putting metrics, mostly physiological metrics around this, that uh, we will actually be able to tokenize it and create intrinsic value and untapped into yet wealth um, so that people would thereby be incentivized. Yes. And so that's really our one of our bigger picture plans. And so I'm sure it's something that we would love to, to have you involved in. Um, and I hope yes. this is the first of many conversations. Yeah, I would love that. Hmm. So, Georgie, before we stop the recording, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience? I'm sure that they've all already Googled you by now and <laughs> and wondered if you have bedtime stories read by Georgie Johnson. <laughs> you know, maybe if there's this one practice which it's worthwhile to do, is that uh, whenever there is a very strong sense of compulsion or busy mind or strong beliefs like feeling certain we're right about something even if we are it doesn't matter to begin to train ourselves to check in on what we feel at that same moment not because it's as a way to get rid of what we're thinking there's nothing wrong with thinking we have beautiful minds but to add to it to respect our the organ of perception or the intelligence of the heart and to really respect it meaning if we're having happy happy thoughts and we check in on the heart and we're feeling kind of depressed and miserable and hate everybody then to take some time there not with the agenda of getting rid of it but with as if it matters as if the heart was an organ of perception which is perceiving a vibration of hatred in that moment mm. for example you see what i mean to to begin to honor ourselves as if what we feel matters because it really really is it matters so much it's forming the matter of our bodies Mm -hmm. it's affecting our nerve system it's affecting our cellular composition our blood biochemistry it's affecting our health it's affecting our relationships it's affecting the whole field and all we have to do is be there Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's a kind of a long spiel but but basically it takes two seconds you can be washing up you know thinking uh blah 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 in the head checking what you feel smile at what you feel and then relax 
<laughs> but often to do to make this a habit it yeah. can make all the difference it's like adding another dimension of aliveness to being alive mm. Mm. Jordi thank you so much it's uh, a pleasure for coming and speaking to everyone who's involved at some level way shape or form with the Institute for Aliveness um, yeah. <laughs> lots of gratitude So how was it? Did you like it? Thank you so much for listening and joining us for season seven of the Vitality Podcast with the Institute for Aliveness. It is my great pleasure to share these conversations and reflections and my lectures from all over the world with you in the comfort of your own home or on your jogging path or on your way to the grocery store, wherever you might be right now. At the Institute for Aliveness, we are here to hold higher standards for humanity, to kind of cast a light upon the path to evolution, personal evolution that involves much more than just the body or the mind, but really the cohesive, holistic nature, the robustness of who and how we are showing up as a human today and where our personal inventory of our past and what's made us the way we are from a neurological, neurobiological level to a physical level and to take agency for that and decide how we want to drive and where we want to drive in the future. And so there's no like to no day like today to fully embrace and take into account the agency for you and the life that you're living. It may be a beautiful one. We're sending you so much love here from Tifa headquarters and we hope that you'll come and join us for a short course soon. I was listening to that for you. If you learned from or moved by the episode, pay it forward. Go to Apple now and leave a five-star review so others can benefit. Join the Institute for Aliveness for a one-week transformational fasting experience. Consider getting an astrology reading from Andy or enroll in the one-year health coach certification course. Whatever you do, don't let this learning pass you by. Do something now to impact your lifestyle for good.